You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in this field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. On today's episode of The Chain, Senior Director Mary Ruberry sits down to speak with Dr. Jamie Spangler, Assistant Professor of Biomedical, Chemical, and Biomolecular Engineering at the Whiting School of Engineering at John Hopkins University. They discuss Dr. Spangler's work with engineering multi-specific antibodies to block cancer metastasis, as well as her personal journey that led her to protein science. I'd like to welcome Jamie Spangler. She's an assistant professor in biomedical engineering and chemical and biomolecular engineering in the Whiting School of Engineering at John Hopkins University. That's Johns Hopkins University, of course. Don't want to leave that extra S out. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, the extra S in Johns, uh, very important. So, uh, <laughs> actually, interestingly, uh, Johns Hopkins, his first name was Johns, plural. Um, it was after his mother's maiden name. Interesting. I never knew that. I always thought it was maybe two different names or something like that. Well, thank you again for joining us, and I wanted to ask you a bit about the work that you're doing. So uh, I'm, I'm so delighted that you could share this, because I think what you're focusing on, I, I strongly believe what you're focusing on is very important. Um, and so I wanted to ask how your group engineers antibody-based molecules that reshape immune cell behavior for targeted treatment of cancer. Yeah, so actually we have a few different approaches. Um, but fundamentally, uh, they all sort of emanate from the same principles. And what we, what I like to think about in our lab is that sort of we use information from structural biology, um, either already solved crystal structures or computational predictions um, from various softwares like Rosetta um, or other threading softwares like ITASR. Um, and we can use that information to sort of feed into the directed evolution process, right? So directed evolution, uh, which won the Nobel Prize in 2018 and was sort of a big hit for um, the field of protein engineering, um, really enables us to take what exists in nature um, and make it better um, or take entirely new proteins sort of inspired by nature and bestow upon them new functions. Um, but of course, if you just take a random approach, um, you're likely to get, you know, all kinds of crazy things that wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, fit the bill for the function that you're looking for. And so having this integrated structural and computational information sort of informs how you're going to design smarter libraries so that you can pull out smarter clones um, that would have the desired function that you would want. Um, and specifically, um, we're interested in engineering antibodies. Um, and instead of engineering the whole antibody on the surface, we just want to uh, engineer the variable regions because the constant regions are going to stay the same, um, at least for uh, the particular functions uh, that we're looking at. Um, and to really get those uh, to bind uh, to either uh, selective targets or to alter their affinity um, for partic particular targets, which happen to be immune molecules, um, and by selectively targeting them to different immune molecules or different receptor components um, of particular immune receptors, we're able to bias the immune response 
based on the expression profiles of particular immune cells. And how has your group been able to discover the biochemical pathway that drives tumor cell migration in order to engineer multi-specific antibodies to block metastasis? Yeah. So for metastasis, uh, we're very interested in ways that we can uh, engineer antibodies that would, instead of um, you know doing what most antibodies uh, against cancer are programmed to do, which is target tumor growth, to actually specifically target the cells moving from one place to another. So there's sort of a longstanding belief in uh, the field of uh, cancer therapy that targeting tumor growth, right, reducing the growth of tumor cells will somehow have a trickle-down effect that it will also actually reduce metastasis, right, reduce the migratory capacity of these cells. But in fact, uh, what people have found more recently is that some of the tumor growth blocking uh, antibodies and other uh, chemotherapeutic treatments can actually enhance or promote metastasis because when the cells see that things aren't going too well, right, at the site of the primary tumor, they want to get out of there and go somewhere else. Um, so interestingly, um, you know, a lot of uh, the problems that we're seeing uh, with uh, cancer metastasis um, are actually often caused by or exacerbated by uh, treatment of uh, or reduction of growth of the primary tumor. Um, and of course, 90% of cancer deaths, cancer-related deaths, result from uh, the spread of the tumor, metastasis, and not from the primary tumor. So recently, um, this actually came from just a very uh, fundamental experiment that we did that um, was enabled by this new uh, 3D cell migration assay um, in high throughput um, that our team developed where we were able to see um, in a 3D collagen matrix that simulates an actual cell microenvironment um, in the extracellular matrix, um, how cancer cells move through it at high density versus low density. And so we basically just seeded the cells um, either a lot of them all together um, or a few of them very sparse. And we were able to see a dramatic difference in the rate at which the cells moved when they were seeded at high versus low. In fact, it was directly correlated that the cells were moving way faster um, in a high density versus the low density. And we wanted to understand biochemically what was happening um, you know, differently between the high density and the low density matrices. And what uh, we actually did was a full sacrotome analysis, looking at all of the different secreted factors. Um, and we identified two specific factors, um, the interleukin-6 cytokine and the interleukin-8 or IL-8 um, chemokine, which were both highly upregulated, but only in the high density uh, matrix case. Um, and so based on that, we were actually able to determine um, through various knockdown um, and other biochemical assays that those two factors, IL-6 and IL-8, were entirely responsible um, for this increased migratory phenotype that we were seeing um, in, uh, when the cells were seeded at high density. Are you aware of other research that's working along the same lines? It's a great question. So 
um, a lot of probably uh, research and thought that's going into blocking cancer metastasis is uh, going on in industry. And so, um, you know, depending on how much they're at liberty to share, you know, about their sort of current uh, going ons, um, we, you know, may or may not know, you know, sort of uh, what our competition is uh, from that perspective. But I would say that in general, um, really the concept of exclusively targeting metastasis decoupled from tumor growth is very new because most therapies will target both and it's very hard to isolate one from the other. Um, what's exciting about this IL-6, IL-8 pathway is that when we block the cell uh, migration, we're actually having no effect on cell proliferation to the extent where it, when we test this in vivo, um, in actual mouse models, we see that the mouse tumors stop metastasizing to a secondary site, but the primary tumor growth is completely unaffected. It grows the same whether you treat with the IL-6, anti-IL-6, anti-IL-8 therapy or not. Um, and so I think it's uh, you know, a very unique way to study the system. Um, there have been a number of um, efforts in recent years, both in academia and industry, uh, to find uh, treatments that will um, be effectively anti-metastatic. Many of them are small molecule-based, um, and a lot of them target um, chemokine-related pathways, um, including the IL-8 uh, pathway. But synergistically targeting uh, between IL-6 and IL-8 is actually pretty new uh, because the IL-6 pathway, although it's uh, historically uh, been known to have various um, both uh, promoting and antagonistic effects in cancer, as a single therapy, it has not been successful in oncology applications. It's actually been used um, a lot more in uh, rheumatology um, and is currently approved um, for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And so we're very interested in how this, um, you know, sort of uh, synergistic and combination uh, pathway can be targeted uh, in the context of uh, metastatic cancer. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Chain and wanted to let you know about an event coming to Southern California in January. The 19th annual Pep Talk Conference is taking place January 20th through the 24th in sunny San Diego. If you need a winter escape to the sun and sand, take advantage of Key Code Pod 100, that's P-O-D 100, to save $100 on registration, just for tuning in today. To learn more, go to chi-pep talk.com to learn more about Pep Talk, the Protein Science Week. And what is the interest this work has generated from other cancer researchers? Yeah, so uh, we're very excited um, here at Hopkins that we really have the opportunity to talk with a number of different uh, faculty um, and also uh, clinicians um, and doctors to see, you know, uh, what really are the urgent medical needs and the particular cancer indications where something like this would be very important. Um, and because of that, we've focused a lot on triple negative breast cancer um, and pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma. Uh, so triple negative can uh, breast cancer um, is the most uh, deadly of all of the uh, known breast cancers. Um, and in particular, um, it's very difficult to target because, as its name would suggest, 
um, the surface markers that are often targeted um, in breast cancer are not expressed um, on uh, this particular subtype. Um, and as a result, um, the therapies against triple negative breast cancer are quite ineffective um, and patient prognosis is very poor um, when the disease becomes metastatic, often to the liver, uh, lymph nodes, and lungs. Um, in addition, uh, pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma has about a 9% survival rate um, for uh, five-year overall survival um, and is just an absolutely uh, devastating disease. I know many people um, who have been personally um, affected by the disease, um, and it's just such a, an aggressive and degenerative um, disease in particular because it's so metastatic. And so in both of those cases, uh, there seems to be a great deal of interest um, in the possibility of using our IL-6, IL-8 uh, cancer metastasis inhibitor for multiple reasons. The first is because we've seen a lot of efficacy, um, you know, in our preclinical models. Um, but the second is actually not only have we seen efficacy, but it seems to be very, very potent um, because we're basically combining two in one, two drugs in one, putting IL-6 and IL-8 together. It's very... Um, uh, it, it benefits from what's known as an avidity effect, whereby having one arm that sort of brings it in to the tumor cell makes it very likely that the other arm will find its target on the same cell. So sort of causing a double whammy, right, and a double blockade for that cell. In addition, one of the biggest problems for targeted therapies is that uh, the cancer cells will develop resistance by either downregulating or mutating uh, the receptor that's actually being targeted. Um, those cancer cells are pretty sneaky. So um, it's ultra important to not just target a particular uh, receptor, but actually to target multiple pathways synergistically so that even if one gets knocked down, the other one you know, is very likely to still be intact, uh, meaning that it's unlikely uh, or less likely uh, for the cancer cell to grow um, and resist uh, the therapeutic treatment. Um, in addition, having sort of the two-in-one model uh, makes things a lot easier for looking downstream at developing a clinical trial um, and ultimately gaining FDA approval. Um, because instead of having to worry about the ratio between the different components that you're adding, now everything is all in one nice compact bundle um, and sort of what you see is what you get um, as you go downstream uh, with, you know, manufacturing this thing um, to potentially put into patients. Well, your work is incredibly exciting, and I just wanted to thank you again for sharing it at Pep Talk next January and for doing this podcast. And if it's okay with you, I wanted to ask you a few more personal questions. Of course, that would be great. And thanks again for the opportunity uh, to highlight and present my work. As I said, I, it's very exciting. I'm, um, I know it's going, it's going to make a big difference. So congratulations on that. Thanks. I wanted to ask, when did you first know you were interested in science? Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, I've been thinking about it a bit because somebody asked me a question recently that I wasn't used to. Um, and that was, if you weren't in uh, science as you know, a faculty, as a researcher, what would you be doing? Um, and I immediately knew the answer, uh, even though I you know, wasn't, don't think about this, like I said, very often. Um, and that is that I would be 
a forensic pathologist um, because I absolutely love and have always been fascinated by crime dramas and mysteries. I'm a huge fan um, of, you know, mystery books, um, of mystery TV shows, things like Law and Order, um, you know, CSI, uh, you know, criminalized, all those kinds of crime drama shows. Um, and uh, the, the reason is I always love puzzles and mysteries and kind of assembling things together, um, but not just, you know, using, uh, you know, sort of random tools, but, but rather um, sort of using known physical or chemical or biological principles, right? So sort of using basic fundamental science to answer these difficult questions and puzzles. Um, and it's been a, a long-standing interest of mine, actually, as a kid, uh, my family, we used to play the game Clue a lot. I don't know if you uh, ever played that or, or remember that board game. Um, but they actually stopped playing with me um, because I would always win my <laughs> um, long shot and nobody ever wanted to play with me. Um, but I, I started playing against the computer and, and other um, sort of venues. But I was always a huge fan of mysteries um, and sort of solving those mysteries. And I think that science is really the ultimate way um, that we can solve a lot of the mysteries of the world, uh, real important mysteries, not necessarily like who done it, you know, uh, clue murder mysteries. But um, I've I've always been really fascinated by that, and I think it really has driven uh, my interest in science. And what specifically led you into researching proteins and developing protein therapeutics? Yeah, so. That uh, the interest in proteins, um, as I said, I've always been interested and fascinated by the scientific world and the way that that operates. Um, my interest in proteins was cultivated by my first research experience as an undergraduate. Um, and I worked for Professor Kalina Rostova, um, who's actually um, also at Johns Hopkins University. This is where I did my undergraduate studies. I actually came back here uh, for my faculty position, kind of fun. Um, and Kalina, uh, was very interested in a variety of different proteins, but the particular one that my project was focused on is called fibroblast growth factor receptor 3, um, or FGFR3, and that is a receptor tyrosine kinase protein um, that's responsible for a number of different growth functions, um, but mutations in that receptor are implicated in very devastating growth disorders, um, ranging from uh, what's called achondroplasia, where you so, or dwarfism, where you have you know short limbs um, and overall short stature, um, and other um, sort of structural and uh, integrity problems uh, with the bones development, um, and also um, more severe um, growth disorders such as thanatophoric dysplasia, uh, which is a lethal uh, growth disorder um, where it's embryonic lethal. Um, and what really fascinated me when I was first working in her lab was that the difference between a healthy person, right, no problems at all, and somebody who is stillborn from thanatophoric dysplasia is literally a single amino acid point mutation in the transmembrane domain of this FGFR3. And to think that a single point mutation in one protein out of the tens of thousands of proteins in your body was literally the difference between life and death, right? Sort of motivated me to appreciate how proteins and things at the molecular level can shape all of human biology, 
right, in all of human physiology. And it really just sparked my interest in if proteins are that powerful, right, to affect all aspects of human life, then wouldn't it be powerful if we ourselves could engineer and manipulate proteins? And so that's really where all of my, you know, interest um, and excitement uh, for the field of protein engineering began. That, that's so exciting. And what's constantly interesting to me is proteins are so, you know, obviously amazing and what you're describing is, is spot on. But when you talk to a lay person, they just think protein has to do with nutrition. They don't understand at all the, the scope. It's very true. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the type of proteins that we're talking about um, are, you know, not the ones on the food pyramid necessarily. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, those proteins are, are very important too um, in terms of shaping, you know, the environmental response, um, in terms of shaping uh, our own physiological responses and our interplay and interaction with the environment. But really, yeah, proteins are, are all of life. And I think for me, it's also a really exciting opportunity to work on so many different fields and so many different applications because fundamentally, right, everything all builds up, right, ground up from proteins. And so we work on everything from you know, stem cells and regenerative medicine to immunotherapy for cancer and infectious disease to autoimmune disorders uh, to retinal eye disease, right? We have all kinds of different projects, um, but all of that is fundamentally related to these sort of building blocks of life, which are proteins. Well, Jamie, thank you again for speaking with us today and sharing your enormous and in-depth insights and important perspectives. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next time for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.